Well, good morning again, everyone. Um, I don't know how you've been um, spending your lockdown time in the last week or so, but it's probably not watching the Olympics because, well, it's over. One of the things I'll remember about the Olympics was really uh, right back in the beginning of it, I think it was one of the first days, the women's road race, the cycling. I don't know if anyone else saw this, uh, but it came to the end of the race and there was this, uh, the, this Dutch woman who was the favourite coming across the finish line with her arms raised, celebrating gold medal victory. It was a picture of jubilation, of accomplishment, only she, she hadn't actually won. At that point, she was not in touch with reality. She thought she'd won, but she'd failed to realise that someone in the breakaway pack that had gone off at the beginning hadn't come back and, and someone had crossed the finish line uh, like a minute before her. And so it was a few minutes later that her coach told her the news, or the, the sad news for her, but the, I guess the good news for the, the Austrian lady who won. I guess that feeling when she was raising her hands and celebrating her win, or what she thought was her win, would have been amazing. It would have been an amazing feeling, but it, it couldn't last because it wasn't real. It wasn't uh, based on reality. Uh, the Israelites, uh, in this chapter we're looking at this morning, uh, come together in mourning because they've just understood a reality about themselves. We're, of course, looking at the book of Nehemiah at the moment in our series, the story of God's people returning from uh, exile in uh, Babylon or what is now the Persian Empire back to Jerusalem uh, in around uh, 445 BC. It's the story of God's restoration project for his place and for his people. And these people are people who wanted to confront reality because though they've banded together to rebuild this wall, though they're in this city, uh, the city of God, things are not as they should be. Now, as chapter nine begins, it's, it's two days after the great feast that we read about last week in chapter eight. And hopefully you heard as Louis was reading, the people, as they come together, they're horribly sad. They're, they come together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. This morning has been paused, really, from chapter 8. Uh, in chapter 8, they uh, brought out the book of the law and they read from it. Uh, and as they heard it, the people erupted into spontaneous weeping. Now, at the time, Nehemiah, the leader, he paused that weeping um, so they could celebrate uh, the feast that they were celebrating, the, the festival of booths. But why were they weeping? And why have they come back here in chapter 9 to, to, to start at it again? Well, because God's word has showed them reality. They've been reading the book of the law. Uh, the first five books of our Bible, that's what the law is, containing, yes, the law of Moses um, given to him by God, but also Genesis, Exodus, the story of God's people and his promises to them. And so reading that, these people have been struck how their current situation is so far different to what God had promised for them uh, from how God made the world. They're back in the land, they've built this wall, the temple is standing but see what it says towards the end of our reading from today. It says, but see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors. The Persian king still taxes them. Times are tough. They're back. The temple is built. The wall is done, but things aren't right. And that's the way of our world too. Things aren't right. 
The Bible says that we don't look forward to safety and good things in a geographical uh, place, Jerusalem, but something even better, a new Jerusalem, a refreshed and recreated earth with no crying or pain. That's how things should be, the Bible tells us. And this week, uh, it's pretty obvious that we're not there. We've witnessed the, the fearfully swift spread of the Taliban back across Afghanistan. We've seen people in desperation to get out. Horrible, horrible scenes, horrific scenes. And in our own country, of course, we've seen the ongoing spread of this virus and the accompanying havoc that it's wrought through uh, lockdowns and so on. Now, if we don't trust God's word as telling us the truth about the world, we probably should just shrug your shoulders at the Taliban at COVID and say, well, it's just how it goes. But many of us do have a sense that that's actually not true, even if we don't know why. But if we trust God's word in the Bible, you know that this is not right, that this is not the vision for the world that God has. So these Israelites, they realize the world is not as it should be, but also they realize that uh, they themselves are a far cry from how they should be. And that somehow that's connected to the situation that they're in. They've realized, as they say near the end of our passage in prayer to God, we are slaves in the land you gave our ancestors because of our sins. It's abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. So they're mourning because the world isn't as it should be and they're not what they could be. It's as if they all of a sudden get this news that actually you've missed something, you haven't won the race. So if you sense that there is something wrong with our world, something wrong with us, then what these Israelites do next uh, is worth looking at this morning. No matter how long you've been a Christian or whether you're not even a Christian yet, it's worth looking at what these Israelites do because what they do gives us hope. And this is what they do. Have a look there in verse 3. They spend a quarter of the day uh, reading the Bible. Then they spend a quarter of the day in confession and worship. As they read the Bible, they're reading reality. And as they worship and confess, uh, they're praying reality. And so we're going to look at those two. The first is, is reading reality. We've already talked a little bit about this, uh, but I want to point out to you that they spend one quarter of a day reading the book of the law together, about, probably about three hours. Remember, they've already shown up in their funeral clothes, essentially, mourning because of what they've heard days before from the book of the law. And then they start reading it again kind of gluttons for punishment. Is that what's going on? No, they want to hear again the reality, to reinforce it, because it's all too easy to forget. See, in our world, there are plenty of different, I guess, takes on how we're living. Some people say, you know, whatever you feel is right, that's the thing you should do. Or sometimes we insulate ourselves from uh, suffering and, and by the illusion that a comfortable, self-consuming life is, you know, that's, that's all that uh, we need to do. That's as good as it gets. Or we, we deceive ourselves. We think, no, actually this world, it's okay as it is. But we need to hear God speak to us again and again through his word. Uh, that cuts through our deception, our self-deception. That cuts to our hearts. And so they spend three hours 
looking at it again together. That's why reading and explaining the Bible is crucial uh, for whenever we meet together. That's why we spend time doing it together as we meet even in this form. That's why we spend time looking at the Bible in our small groups. That's why we send out devotions each day. Um, So you can have a look at one part of the Bible each morning. See, this is a reality check. It's what we need. Uh, The story that the Bible tells us is that the world is not right and that human rebellion is the cause. And if human rebellion is the cause, then the perfect solution is to do what these people did next. Come before God in worship and confession. That's why they spend then another three hours together worshipping and confessing. Now, what this looks like, uh, we don't have three hours of content in our chapter, but it's it's summarised in the prayer that we have recorded here, uh, which contains both worship and confession. Now, in the reading uh, that Louis read for us, we heard the beginning of the prayer and the end of it. And the part that I asked Louis to leave out, well, it's essentially a potted history of God's dealings with his people from his promise to Abraham through to their present day. It's the story, essentially, of the book of the law. So just think about this for a second. They've read the book of the law back in chapter 8, and that's brought them back in mourning. Then they've read the book of the law again, and now they're praying what they've just read. They're speaking to God in the words that God has used to them. They're acknowledging the truth of what they've read. Here's an example just from part of their prayer. They speak to God. You can see they call him you. And they pray the story back to him. So their worship of God, what does it look like? Well, it takes the form of telling him what he's revealed to them about him. And their confession takes the form of admitting what he's revealed to them about themselves, about humanity, about the people of Israel. Now, this is a foundational key to what prayer is, what Christian prayer is. It's not not just going off randomly, um, talking, you know, whatever words come into your mind to God, but it's about hearing God speak to you and then responding. See, praying is actually a way of embracing reality. And that doesn't mean it's boring. It doesn't mean you just uh, regurgitate the words you read in the Bible. It means fully engaging with the concepts of the Bible, taking that worldview, owning it yourself. Jesus tells us to pray for God's will to be done. We know his will through what he said. So prayer is about more and more seeing the world through God's eyes, seeing ourselves through his eyes. And so when these Israelites get to the end of retelling this story in prayer uh, with themselves in it, they summarise essentially what they've learned, what they're saying to God. Here's the summary that they say at the end of their prayer. It's in verse 33. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. God is good. That's, I guess, the summary of their worship. They're not. That's their confession. And so I want to spend a little moment now just looking a bit at what constitutes that acting wickedly they're talking about and hone in on one aspect of sin that's highlighted in this passage, which I think is really helpful for us. It's the idea of of arrogance. It's mentioned three times uh, in this prayer, and I'll just show you the parts. Uh, You wouldn't have 
have, this is out of the part that Louis didn't read, but it's mentioned three times. Here's the first time uh, when the people are talking about uh, the signs and wonders against Pharaoh, the, the Egyptians and Pharaoh acted arrogantly. Now these people, the Egyptians are clearly not God's people and how they, uh, I guess, act towards God's people and God is described as arrogance. But then you see it come up again for God's people too. Our ancestors became arrogant and stiff-necked. Or a little bit further on again in verse 29, you can see it again. They became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. See, arrogance is really thinking you know better, or perhaps thinking that you are better, better than God, better than other people. It's to be presumptuous about how good you are. And in this prayer, this prayer of worship and confession, we actually see a way to counter or to resist arrogance. How do the people do it? Well, firstly, in worship, they put an end to arrogance by humbly coming before God, by magnifying God, by focusing on his goodness. This is how they start as they come before God. They say, you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens. Because when you reflect on the, the goodness, the glory of God, it's, it's hard to feel bigger than him. So that's, that's worship. But secondly, this act of confession helps in this battle against arrogance as well, because they're acknowledging, well, that they're no better than any other human being. Now, um, during the lockdown, I've enjoyed going on lots of walks. I'm sure lots of you have. Um, seems most of Warunga is out on the streets, kind of trying to avoid each other with wide birds around trees. So 1.5 metres apart. But one thing I love doing on walks is looking at other walkers and trying to work out their relationship to each other. I liked this before lockdown, but lockdown's even made it uh, a more prominent part of my, uh, my experience. And I love seeing a beautiful like uh, mother and daughter combination. You just think, oh, they look so alike. The other day I saw two brothers well, I assume they were brothers. I've never actually asked anyone, so I'm at 100% so far. But two brothers, one who was just, you know, this guy and this other guy, just the same guy with facial hair and a little bit older. I was like, oh, it's just so beautiful. I don't know if you know what I mean, but it's satisfying to see that family likeness. Uh, people who are obviously cut from the same cloth. Of course, we know that family likeness, it goes beyond just appearances. Um, I can't see that on my walks, but I don't know if you've realised uh, that you've got similar traits from one of your parents, perhaps, or even a similar character, similar strengths and weaknesses. Well, the Israelites knew all about this family likeness. That's why, now I'm not sure if you caught this at the beginning, as they come together, they confess the sins of their ancestors. They, they confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. I mean, how does that make sense? Uh, look at the end of the prayer, what they say. They actually own the sins of the ancestors. They say, we're slaves today because of our sins. Hold on a second. For an Israelite there in Jerusalem, uh, under the, I guess, the slavery of the king of Persia, their personal rebellion against God hadn't even started when Israel was taken into exile. They weren't even born. And yet somehow they're personally connected, they're saying, to the current state of their world. It's because of our sins, they say. See, this is the reality that they've realised, that they're part of a common Israel. 
They're part of a common humanity. They know that they wouldn't do any better than their ancestors. It's only for the timing of their birth that it wasn't them who was rebelling against God in the desert. They're saying, I can see what's going on with them because we have a family likeness. And so they say, we, and that's us too, with all of humanity. The Bible tells us that everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Remember what, I guess, what arrogance is about? It's about presuming you're better than you are. It's perhaps thinking, well, I wouldn't do that. But you know what? We are all cut from the same cloth. So I wonder if we look at these Israelite ancestors as we read our Old Testaments and we think, well, if I'd seen the wonderful signs uh, that God did in Egypt, the plagues, if I'd had manna from heaven to, to feast on, I wouldn't have been stiff-necked. I wouldn't have been obstinate like these people. We probably wouldn't say it, but I wonder if that's what we might think. That's a pretty big presumption. But we're cut from the same cloth as all humanity. I've been thinking about that this week as there's been, well, for the last few weeks, lots of, I guess, public condemnation of people who've flouted restrictions or have, have invited people to their households. It's easy to sit there as... Deputy Police Commissioner Warboys tells you the latest people who've done the wrong thing and think in your head, selfish. I wouldn't have done that. But wouldn't you? If you were in the situation of some of these people, wouldn't you have done that? I don't know what the situations are, but perhaps, perhaps people literally don't have any food in their house, no money to buy it. And so you need to go down the road to a relative and, and get some food. In that situation, well, maybe you would. The point's not so much to put yourself in someone else's shoes so we can have compassion. That's not a, not a bad thing. But what I'm talking about is being real with ourselves, protecting ourselves from deadly arrogance. Or what about, what about this? We look at the horrible situation in Afghanistan at the moment, and we think about those who are, who, who are doing those things. We hear of these horrible abuses that have already happened, the hit list of Christians, protesters being shot. And we think, how could anyone do that? That is monstrous. But then you think, perhaps that could be me. Imagine if you were raised in Pakistan under the influence of Taliban teachers. Imagine if the only worldview you knew was one where violence was the only language. That in your mind, bringing Taliban rule to uh, Afghanistan, that was a way you could do something good for the world, something good for your family. Imagine if you feared for your life, if you spoke out any differently. If that was your life, do you really think that you personally would have the moral compass or the, the moral fortitude to stand up against that, to go the other way? Where would you find that in yourself? I'm not saying that to excuse horrific behavior. It's disgusting, but it's also a lot worse than that because that could be you, that could be me. So Jesus tells this story. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, the Israelites talk of our sin, our wickedness. We are the reason the world is not as it should be, they say. Our sin. They understood that they needed this mercy. And so they come to God humbly admitting their arrogance and depending on his mercy. And their admission, thanks be to God, that they really are sinners, means that mercy is possible. But it also means that the hope of change seems unlikely, that there's this cycle of forgiveness and failure. And as we'll see in the next chapters of Nehemiah, even though these people are here, mourning, confessing, worshipping, these very people quickly betray God again. And so you know what we need? What, what they need? What this world needs? We need some new cloth. They need and we need a solution to arrogance. And Jesus is the new cloth. See, Jesus, God himself, came into our world. He was truly human. And the true Israelite descended from Abraham, but he was cut from different cloth. He was cut from the cloth of his father, not from our father, Adam. He came in humility. He was the antithesis to arrogance. He was humble before God, saying, not my will, but yours. And he was humble before other people, saying, I've come to serve, not be served, despite him actually being better than anyone else. And then he gave up his life, he died, he rose, and he invites us to be in him. That's how the Bible describes a Christian, someone who's in Christ, someone who's a new creation. When you become a Christian, that's exactly what happens. You're new. You get a new family resemblance. Being united with Jesus, the son, means that you are now truly children of God, adopted in. And so as these Israelites confessed, seemingly hopelessly, God has mercy on them because he knew that he had a plan to make things right, to ultimately restore things through his son, even though they didn't know what it would look like. And so as we realize reality, what we need is to be united with Jesus. As we finish, Nehemiah and his contemporaries were still waiting for the ultimate solution in Jesus. But they do just give us a pointer on how to combat our lingering arrogance as the people of God. And this is the key, together. You might have seen they gathered together. They embraced their connections with their ancestors from past times. They were together with them. They mourned together. They praised together. They read the word together. They worshiped together. They confessed together. Why does together help us? Well, just quickly, it means that you see your own place in the story of God and grow in appreciation for others' place in that same story. Just like those in Nehemiah's day, we retell this story of the Israelite ancestors as our own through Egypt. But unlike them, we tell their story as well. And we go ahead to the pinnacle of the story, Jesus Christ. And then we've got more to add, stories of how God's goodness down the generations has blessed us Individual stories of how he's rescued us, of how God's building his church, how he founded a church here in Rurunga on uh, Pierce's Corner back in the 19th century, how he put a church here on Water Street after that, 
It's one of the reasons I'm excited about this partnership between St. Andrews and St. Paul's. Christian brothers and sisters, uh, more of them to get to know, to appreciate God's wider work together. It helps us see that we're one small part and that God is great. Telling this story together protects us from arrogance and helps us give praise to God. See, the only way we can see reality is God's word, reading it, praying it. It shows us the world is not as it should be. And the reason it's not is because of each of us. We're cut from the same cloth as every other human. And we think we're better than God. Well, the same cloth except for one human being, Jesus Christ. By God's generous mercy and grace, in him we have the opportunity to be created anew. And by his, his mercy as well, he gives us each other as a means of his grace, a way of protecting ourselves from the worst of our arrogance. Let's pray. Father, we know uh, that this world isn't right when we look around. Please help us see truly that we're not right either. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and deliverance through the Lord Jesus. And we pray you would give us humility and honesty to be truly together in praise and in confession, in living for you. In his name we pray. Amen.